Misery Machine. I'm Yerky. And I'm Drewby. And this week we're doing the toxic lady, Gloria Ramirez. There's a couple of conspiracy theories with this case, but you'll have to let us know if you agree with the outcome of the case. I agree with the outcome of the case. <laughs> and if you're listening on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe. We just hit 800 subscribers. So thank you so much to everyone that supported us thus far. Thank you so much, guys. But without further ado, the toxic lady. Thirty-one-year-old Gloria Ramirez was an American woman from Riverside, California, who was called the Toxic Lady or the Toxic Woman when several hospital workers became sick after being exposed to Ramirez and her blood. She had been admitted to the emergency department while suffering from late-stage cervical cancer. While treating Ramirez, several hospital employees fainted and others experienced symptoms such as shortness of breath and muscle spasms. Five of the workers required hospitalization, one of whom remained in an intensive care unit for two weeks. Shortly after arriving at the hospital, Ramirez died from complications related to her cervical cancer. The incident was initially considered to be a case of mass hysteria. An investigation by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory proposed that Ramirez had been self-administering dimethyl sulfoxide as a treatment for pain, which converted into dimethyl sulfate, an extremely poisonous and highly carcinogenic substance, via a series of chemical reactions in the emergency department. DMSO, which is what we'll call dimethyl sulfoxide going forward, is a prescription medication and dietary supplement. Now, I hadn't heard of it prior to this. Me neither. Um, it's not very commonly given from what I understand. It can be taken by mouth, applied to the skin, or injected into the veins, and usually this is done by IV. One of the things that DMSO can be used intravenously is for the management of amyloidosis, I think I said that correctly, and related symptoms to the condition. However, there's conflicting evidence on the usefulness of this. Amyloidosis is a condition in which certain proteins are deposited abnormally in organs and tissues. As far as topically is concerned, DMSO is used to decrease pain and to speed up the healing of wounds, burns, and muscle and skeletal injuries. I'm not a medical health professional, so again, take all of this with a grain of salt, but basically what I've read is that DMSO is also used to treat painful conditions such as headache, inflammation, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, as well as severe facial pain. It's also used topically for eye conditions, including cataracts, glaucoma, and problems with the retina. For foot conditions, they can use it for bunions and calluses and fungus on the toenails. So I know of treatments for all these things, but I've never heard of DMSO being one of them. So I don't know if this is an outdated treatment for a lot of these things so honestly when you have something here that is a catch-all for all of these things something just tells me that it's snake oil personally especially because this stuff can be used in like not really manufacturing it was more of for industrial purposes i think i've read that it can be used when making paper it's the or it's a byproduct of making paper don't quote me on that But I don't want to say this is snake oil. I just think there are better, more targeted things out there. When I was looking up things that it treated, not many things were listed as this being highly effective on other than bladder inflammation. I would say that might have been for our victim here. Maybe something that was good for her where she had late stage 
cervical cancer, that spreads outside of the cervix and into the surrounding tissue. So maybe she had a little bit of that. So what I've also read is what they'll sometimes do with people who are on chemotherapy, they'll give them DMSO if it starts to bother their skin. Apparently, it can leak out the IV and affect your skin somehow. Yeah, it would burn your skin. Yeah, so they'll use DMSO on that specifically for people on chemotherapy. But other than that, I didn't see many things in which it was considered highly effective. However, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a medical health professional. So take all this with a grain of salt. This is just what I've found. And mind you, this was the 90s as well. Based on what you'll find out later in this episode, I would assume it was probably self-prescribed due to the overdosage of it. So... At about 8.15 p.m. on the evening of February 19, 1994, Ramirez, who was suffering from severe heart palpitations, was brought into the emergency department of Riverside General Hospital by paramedics. She was extremely confused and was suffering from tachycardia and Shane Stokes respiration. So if you're not familiar with Shane Stokes, it's an abnormal pattern of breathing characterized by progressively deeper Sometimes faster breathing followed by a gradual decrease that results in a temporary stop in breathing. You probably know this as apnea. The pattern will repeat. Each cycle usually takes 30 seconds to two minutes. The medical staff injected her with diazepam, midazolam, and lorazepam to sedate her. When it became clear that Ramirez was responding poorly to treatment, the staff tried to defibrillate her heart. At that point, several people saw an oily sheen covering Ramirez's body, and some noticed a fruity garlic-like odor that they thought was coming from her mouth. A registered nurse named Susan Kane attempted to draw blood from Ramirez's arm and noticed an ammonia-like smell coming from the tube. The syringe was passed from Kane to a medical resident named Julie Gorchinsky, who noticed manila-colored particles floating in the blood. At this point, Kane fainted and was removed from the room. Shortly thereafter, Gorchinsky began to feel nauseated. Complaining that she was lightheaded, she left the trauma room and sat at the nurse's desk. A staff member asked her if she was okay, but before she could respond, she also fainted. Maureen Welch, a respiratory therapist who was assisting in the trauma room, was the third to pass out. Following this, the staff was then ordered to evacuate all emergency department patients to the parking lot outside of the hospital. So they all had to strip down to their underwear because they weren't sure what was causing this. They assumed it was a noxious gas, was taking out their staff. So they all had to, even the patients, go out into the parking lot to Mm -hmm. be treated. There's pictures of this. They're very, very grainy, obviously, because this is 1994. I found a couple on the internet we can include in the slideshow for YouTube, but I mean, obviously they're not very great. So overall, 23 people became ill and five were hospitalized. A skeleton crew of staff stayed behind to stabilize Ramirez. And at 8.50 p.m., 45 minutes of CPR and defibrillation later, Ramirez was pronounced dead from kidney failure related to her cancer. 23 of the 37 emergency room staff members experienced at least one symptom. Five were hospitalized for the rest of the night. Gorchinsky continued to experience tremors and apnea. Kane could not control her limbs, reportedly flailing her arms and legs, and her face still burnt. Meanwhile, a vocational nurse named Sally Balderas, I think I said it correctly, had gone back inside to help take Ramirez's body into the isolation room. Upon doing this, she began retching and felt a burning sensation on her skin. Soon, she too was laid out on a gurney. 
Balderas endured bouts of apnea during a 10-day hospitalization. Gorchinsky, who was the most severely ill, spent two weeks in intensive care. And there's interviews with her on YouTube. I think 2020 did an interview with her. She suffered not only from apnea, hepatitis, pancreatitis, and a vascular necrosis. And if you don't know what that is, that's a condition in which the bone tissue can't get blood, so it starts to die. So she's having bone tissue just dying from exposure to this woman. In her case, the vascular necrosis attacked her knees. So this restricted her to crutches for months. And from what I understand, she was a professional level surfer as well. So I don't know what happened to her career, her surfing career after that, but... That's pretty cool to be a doctor and a professional level surfer. Yeah, I know, right? That's pretty cool. I only heard about that on 2020, on the 2020 interview or, or parts of it I saw. I couldn't find the whole thing. I'd have to look again. But yeah, they mentioned that she was a professional level surfer, which is cool. So hopefully after all was said and done, because she did fully recover... From what I understand. As much as you really can from as much as you really can tissue from that. in your knees. Yeah, bone tissue is not the most regenerative thing in your body, that's for sure. The Riverside County Hazmat team arrived at about eleven PM that night. They searched for any of a host of noxious chemicals, but none could be found. Despite this, the Riverside Coroner's Office was still suspicious and put in airtight moon suits, taking roughly ninety minutes to retrieve samples of blood tissue, air from the body bag, and the body itself. The county health department called in California's Department of Health and Human Services, which put two scientists, Drs. Anna Maria Osorio, I hope I said that right, and Kirsten Waller on the case. They interviewed 34 hospital staff who'd been working in the emergency department on February 19th. Using a standardized questionnaire, they found that the people who had developed severe symptoms such as loss of consciousness, shortness of breath, and muscle spasms tended to have certain things in common. People who had worked within two feet of Gloria Ramirez and handled her IVs had been at high risk, but other factors that correlated with severe symptoms did not appear to match a scenario in which fumes had been released. The survey found that those afflicted tended to be women rather than men, and they all had normal blood tests after the exposure. They believe the hospital workers suffered from mass hysteria. This is in in the, in, ni- in the 90s. That is so gross. Just your, your uteruses. They're infecting other people with other uteruses and making them go crazy. Mm-hmm. Your mind is in your uterus. Like, what? I don't even understand. Korczynski denied that she had been affected by mass hysteria. Good on her. Obviously. (laughs) And pointed to her own medical history as evidence. After the exposure, she spent two weeks in the intensive care unit with breathing problems. She developed hepatitis and vascular necrosis in her knees, as we said earlier. The Riverside Coroner's Office contacted Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to investigate the incident. Livermore Labs postulated that Ramirez had been using DMSO, a solvent used as a powerful degreaser, as a home remedy for pain. Users of this substance report that it has a garlic-like taste. Sold in gel form at hardware stores, it could also explain the greasy appearance of Ramirez's body. The Livermore scientists theorized that the DMSO in Ramirez's system might have built up owing to urinary blockage caused by her kidney failure. Oxygen administered by the paramedics would have combined with the DMSO to form dimethylsulfone, or DMSO2, which is known to crystallize at room temperature. 
and crystals were observed in some of Ramirez's drawn blood. Electric shocks administered during emergency defibrillation could have then converted the DMSO2 into dimethyl sulfate, which is known as DMSO4, which is the highly toxic dimethyl ester of sulfuric acid, exposure to which could have caused some of the reported symptoms of the emergency department staff. Livermore scientists postulated that the change in the temperature from the blood drawn from your normal 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, which was of her body, to the 64 degrees Fahrenheit of the emergency room department may have contributed to its conversion from DMSO2 into the DMSO4. This, however, has not been confirmed. An alternate theory proposed was that Gloria Ramirez could have been exposed to chemicals used in the production of methamphetamine. Riverside County has been reported as one of the largest methamphetamine distribution points in the U.S. and as such, it was theorized that the hospital workers were smuggling chemicals in IV bags and that one could have mistakenly given one to Gloria Ramirez. The key element in support of this theory is that meth precursors have a distinctive ammonia smell. That seems like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's kind of an offensive theory. I mean, I don't know if this is still a big meth location. I don't even know if it was then or if they were just trying to write it off as such. A lot of things have a distinctive ammonia smell. Yeah, I know, right? I just don't think this is a a very strong theory. Two months after Ramirez died, her badly decomposed body was released for an independent autopsy and burial. The Riverside Coroner's Office hailed Livermore's DMSO conclusion as the probable cause of the hospital worker's symptoms while her family disagreed. The Ramirez family's pathologist was unable to determine a cause of death because her heart was missing, her other organs were cross-contaminated with fecal matter, and her body was too badly decomposed. On April 20th, 1994, 10 weeks after her death, Gloria Ramirez was buried at Olivewood Memorial Park in Riverside, California. You had mentioned that we talked about this in the Kendrick Johnson case about decomposed organs Mm -hmm. and what they do to preserve it. So why would she be kept in a place where she's so badly decomposed? Why are some organs contaminated with fecal matter besides the ones that would obviously be contaminated? Like why would like a heart be missing? Not everything's going to be covered in fecal matter that isn't related to the digestive system, right? Right. So I don't exactly know what was cross-contaminated with fecal matter. My guess just with the information that we have is that her body might have been left out too long and organ decomposition starts very quickly within 24 hours. So that combined with the fact that she had late stage cervical cancer, she probably, because that leaves your womb at that point, it was already affecting her kidneys. It could have possibly been in her intestines at that point too. That's true. So you, you have a badly decomposed body if she had any fecal matter within her intestinal tract it's going to come out so if they're trying to look at her kidneys they're trying to look at her stomach anything anything that's in like the gut cavity is going to be contaminated so it can rupture open in the body instead of just you know go out the normal passageways upon death So it's it's hard to say with this because normally you do have your corpse pooping that can happen when normally a funeral practitioner comes to pick up the body. There was an ask a mortician about right. this recently. <laughs> we, were, yeah. we were watching that, but it just sounds like her body's badly decomposed at this point. I'm just 
guessing. I don't know. They didn't give us the details. That her organs had started to decompose and everything started to become, for lack of a better term, a mush. Yeah, and there's not a ton of details in this. I had a hard time finding coroner's reports, but don't quote me on this. I believe I read three different autopsies. The first two were performed by the same pathologist, and allegedly the first autopsy, he concluded that the death was not of natural causes, and he may have suggested foul play. There was only one source I saw that was claiming this, so if I got this wrong, I'm sorry. That's why I'm saying allegedly. But then after he had claimed this on the second one, he called it natural causes, but refused to clarify what led him to his conclusion on the first one. If there was a third one, which I believe I read there was, it was done through somebody else independently that the Ramirez family hired on. And this was when they found, oh, her organs are missing, they're cross-contaminated, the body's too badly decomposed. What's up with all these organs missing? I don't... And all these cases that we're doing. But don't you keep they bodies... They should be in specimen bags. Yeah, because aren't bodies kept in certain temperatures? Yes, they should be kept in refrigeration. When you're done with the organs, they're usually put back in bags and put back in the body cavity just in case. Yeah, I know when we had some weirdo comments on the Kendrick Johnson case about how, oh, of course the organs are going to be decomposed. Like, uh, of course they'll throw out the organs. No, they don't. They th- generally do not they, do that. They don't throw out the organs. In that one, they <laughs> stuff the body with newspaper. Because you got to think about it. If you're running into a situation where there are going to be multiple inquests about the body, you're going to need the organs there. So that's why they put them in the bags and put them back in the body. I don't know the difference between this case and a bunch of other cases where they're able to run all these tests on different organ systems. I mean, this was 1994 as well. Maybe they didn't have very good best practices back then. In California? I thought they had a pretty good medical system. It's hard to say. Riverside's not a small town by any means. I don't know. This is just I, my I, best guess Yeah, I'm, I'm not from there and I don't know a whole ton about it. I just know what I've heard in passing, not about Riverside, but about the California medical system in general. This just seems sloppy, as you said, in a situation where there was going to be multiple inquests. And something like this, where the team goes in there in moon suits to take the body out because they think she's releasing some kind of noxious gas. They even took air from the body bag. So if you go through this much trouble, wouldn't you think that it's not going to be just a one and done sort of thing? Not only that, why wouldn't they keep her in proper refrigeration? Yeah, right. To, I mean, if you're that badly decomposed, I know even if you're in proper refrigeration after a while, your body's going to do whatever, but take some just extra steps to preserve, I guess. And why did it take two months? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense either, especially when, like, you have people in the hospital, one person who took a while to get out and is still recovering, don't you want to know exactly what this is so these people can get the proper treatment for whatever they were exposed to? The whole thing seems rather sloppy. So you may remember Dr. Nathan from our Kanika Jenkins episode. He's a clinical pharmacist, and I couldn't help but run this case by him as I'm not familiar with DMSO. And while this isn't an official clinical opinion, he gives some possibilities, what possibly could have happened here. So as as long as you just remember this is not diagnosis or medical advice, just possibility. So 
It can be summed up as follows. DMSO is used topically to reduce pain and inflammation. This lady must have used a lot of it for a while. When she passed out due to complications of her cancer, the first responders gave her oxygen. The DMSO in her body reacted with the high oxygen load that the paramedics gave her, and it formed dimethyl sulfone. Then they speculate that the dimethyl sulfone broke down into its basic components, which are hydrocarbon and SO2. They speculate that the hydrocarbons in SO2 reacted with her body's natural sulfates, SO4, adding enough oxygen molecules to form dimethyl sulfate, which is the noxious gas. However, because of the warm temperature of her body, the dimethyl sulfate could have been unstable and would quickly break down into the basic components, so it would have been no harm to her or the people around her. But when they drew her blood, the drop in temperature from her body temp to the colder room air stabilized some of the dimethyl sulfate which then partially vaporized into the air, which could have caused the symptoms of the healthcare workers. And as far as the resident physician, Julie Gorchinsky, is concerned, she was the one with the avascular necrosis and probably ended up worse for wear compared to everyone else. So Dr. Nathan says her outcome is partially consistent with dimethyl sulfate exposure. Take that for what it's worth. I really do appreciate his thoughts on the matter, but that's basically it from a clinical perspective. I haven't really seen much in other conspiracy theories. I personally believe the meth one is a bit of a stretch. I've also seen some people theorize that in the circumstances they were in, the conversion of DMSO2 to DMSO4 isn't possible, but I don't know anything about that. Uh, If you do and would like to shed some light on that, leave us a comment down below if you're listening on YouTube or send us an email. But yeah, is there a conclusion we haven't considered? All Again, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, kind of my closing thoughts on this is, yeah, 1994 was a long time ago and things have changed a lot, you know, since then. But vagina-owning folks, definitely go get your annual pap tests because if you do, this is a very preventable disease to have and it's not a nice way to go out. So this is definitely why we should keep clinics funded so everyone has a chance to get these tests done. Yeah, absolutely. For somebody that young and for it to be progressed that far to the point where she's coming into the emergency room because she's literally dying of it. Mm-hmm. I've just... You've had to... I've not had, heard of cases like that. You don't really see that anymore because you can... Well, first off, we now have the HPV vaccine that is being given to younger children when they're in middle and high school to kind of prevent that because HPV, the two of the, the nastier strains are one of the number one causes of cervical cancer. Yep. And there's more places you can go get screened now. And Whereas, screen more often and, and more screen often. younger. I've known countless women who have had part of their cervixes. I don't want to say removed, but they've had tissue removed mm-hmm. because it was showing precancerous behavior. I feel like they're more on top of that now. Yeah, I mean, I've had friends that have had similar things happen. Actually, every woman in my family, aside from my sister and I, have completely lucked out. They've all had to have full hysterectomies, aside from my mom. My mom has some other issues where she can't have major surgery, so she had to have like the ablations and everything. But everybody else in my 
family, you know, very young 30s, had to completely have everything come out due to that. This was not long ago. Here I am thinking, how are they so behind the times? But at the same time, I'm like, man, if this was the standard, how far have we come in such a short amount of time, all things considered in the medical community? Well, think about it, how quickly HPV can spread around. So when they didn't have the vaccine back, then you have more and more and more chances that it's just out and about in the wild. Yeah, and it, it transmits other ways, not just sexually. Right. So that can be, I feel like dangerous might be overstating it, but I think in this case, as far as cancer and other diseases are concerned, it, it is dangerous. I mean, it infects women more than men. I have heard of men have HPV and there's not a whole lot of treatment for the men and you get to a certain age, you're not allowed to get the vaccine, but they can get certain cancers as well due to HPV, from what I understand. Yeah, so. and not only just the cancer, it's just the high rate of infertility after. Yes, that is also a possibility. And some don't even realize. I remember when I was younger and my grandmother was telling me how she would just know some kids, like kids, like I'm talking about like single digit age, get the mumps and they would be rendered sterile afterwards, apparently is what she said. And that just was like, oh my God, you're it's decided that young that you can't have children anymore. What an awful thing to be told at a time where it's expected that you raise a family and have kids. How crazy is that, that we don't have that in our age? But I guess we do, just to a lesser extent we with HPV. We have it in a lot of different ways. So it's not just HPV and cervical cancer. There's a really high rate I've noticed with folks that have vaginas in my age group with different disorders such as PCOS, which I have a lot. And it seems like our age group was just kind of cursed. It seems as I've gotten older, like in my teens, this was something that I vaguely knew about. I knew of one person who had it in my graduating class. Then after I get out of high school, I know countless numbers of people who have had it. It just seems like the millennial generation has been plagued with it. And I just wonder why that is, because it didn't seem like this was something that was incredibly active in prior generations. I could be wrong. I'm not a medical professional on this. I this theorize is just what it seems like to me. It has to do with growth hormones and milk. But that's just my own like crazy theory. We're getting off a little topic here, but we're, you know, we're talking about health issues. When I was younger, I developed very, very early and a lot of girls in my age group did. But now that I look back, I started going through puberty at seven years old and I look at like seven year olds to 10 year olds and they're, they're, they're just tiny babies now. Yeah. No, you know, I, so what, I, I so noticed that happens, too growing up. What happens between the children now and when I was growing up having to wear a bra and, you know, getting body hair and starting menstruation very early? Yeah, there was a lot of girls with developed bodies in my grade when I was in second, third, and you know, fourth grade. And I can't help but think that is why, like, a lot of us have this now. I don't know enough about growth hormones in milk. I will say that it was really pushed on us to drink milk. When I was growing up, you yes. had all those milk does the body good. It was forced commercials. on us at school. I remember every night at dinner, I had to drink a big glass of milk. It was just second nature at that point. People who didn't drink milk, I was like, oh my God, you're going to have really brittle bones. Until they find out that might not actually be true. So I don't think milk consumption is as huge now as it was back then. Speculating, but that's just what it seems like. So maybe your correlation has some merit. I don't know this for certain. I haven't researched this, but just off the cuff conjecture, it seems like 
it could be plausible. Yeah, I don't really have anything else other to kind of add to this. I I know I went off topic here for a moment, but it kind of all circles back. Hey, we we we've got, been good we, we about got, being on topic though. We finished the case, so if you stuck around this far and like hearing us talk about, it, and people have been been like, why don't you shoot the shit anymore? Why don't you just go off topic? We miss that from the old days. Well. I'd love to. <laughs> we do that on our Patreon episode. So if you want to hear those, and we do weekly check-ins most weeks, patreon.com slash the misery machine. And if you want us to get more off topic on these episodes, we'll probably do it closer towards the end and you know throw us some ideas. I don't want to go crazy, but maybe if you have an idea for some off topic episode that isn't true crime, let us know. We're open to it. Truly, we are. Yeah, I miss being funny on episodes. I really do. <laughs> okay. I guess short tangent is that if we laugh about something non-related, we get absolutely torched in the comment sections because they think we're laughing at the case. But yet many big podcasts will, and not I'm not gonna I'm not going to name names, will say the most problematic stuff and literally make fun of victims and victim shame and everybody eats it up. Everybody loves it. And I'm not just talking about problematic people love it. No, the same people that complain about us that love, there's one podcast in, in particular mm -hmm. that I can think of. They just give these people a pass on saying some can't, oh, so and so can't, being so and so cancel worthy <laughs> stuff basically so you know i and don't it sucks because i actually i love that podcast i'm not we're not throwing any hate here i am a big fan of this podcast i'm just wanting to know what the double standard is it's yeah. not it's, it's worse than a double standard because we don't victim shame like my problem with true crime is that it glorifies killers and it just glosses over the victim without any sort of focus on them and I feel like even despite that, people think we're making fun of a victim somehow or the worst one. They don't agree with what we think could have happened in the case. So they think we have no empathy for the situation. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one as well. A anyway, I'm not going to rant over. <laughs> All right. You got anything else? No. Okay. If you're listening on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe. I think by the time this comes out, we will have 800 subscribers on YouTube. So thank you so much for all the support. And hitting like and subscribe goes a long way for us. We're closing on a thousand. And if you like what we do, hitting like and subscribe helps us get out there. Oh, and thank you to our patrons. Yes, thank you so much to our patrons. So thank you, Eddie, Holly, Rowan, Marky, Lauren, Karen, Vu, Ashley, Anna, Chloe, and welcome, Serena. Yes, welcome, Serena. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon. And if you want to support us as well on Patreon, get our monthly postcards, you get access to all our secret groups, you get to hear our secret episodes. And watch our secret videos. And watch our secret videos. Patreon.com slash The Misery Machine or PayPal.me slash The Misery Machine and message us. Also, stickers. Stickers. So we still have some stickers. All we need from you is $1 to cover shipping and handling. Which you can do through PayPal. Absolutely. And we will hook you up with a sticker. Patrons, I believe you have all gotten your free stickers. And if you haven't yet, please email or message us immediately. I know one's going to take a little bit of time to get there because we're going way over the pond and around the bend. It will get it there. It will get there. <laughs> it will get there. All right. But until next time. Until next time. We love you. We love you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.